love this note up here on the pulpit. It says, please do not touch Mike, it is shorted. And they put there knowing that I'd have to test it, right? <laughs> Y'all may get to hear me say glory if I touch it, I don't know. I want to ask you to turn your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. 1 Chronicles chapter 16. I, I think we live in an incredible age. There's a lot of reasons we live in an incredible age, but I think one of the coolest reasons to be alive today is we have digital photography. I think that is such a neat thing. Uh, you know, years ago, you, you bought the film and you took the pictures, then you had to take the film to the place to get it developed, or actually, when I was growing up, we had our own dark room in the house and we actually had to get all the chemicals out and I had an enlarger in fact is I donated my enlarger many years ago to the seminary and I, I think it has sat there unused for many years and I used to develop film and I'd make enlargements and you'd you'd learn how to dodge out the bright spots and do all kinds of neat things with it and uh, it was really an art form and I remember taking a class in college where they you, you had to develop slides, and you had to develop black and white prints. I was already ahead of the game because I'd already, you know, learned a lot of that. And it was really interesting that if you learned the right techniques, you could make a good picture out of a so-so picture. But, boy, digital photography's revolutionized all that. You know, everybody knows about the famous red-eye problem, right? That doesn't bother me anymore. If I get red eyes in my pictures, I pull them up on the computer and I click the red eye tool and I go over and click on their pupils and the red eyes are gone. That's a pretty cool thing to be able to do. And then you can go over and you can, uh, you can make all other kinds of changes. And you can put soft blur around the end. You can make a person look like they're in a fog so it has that kind of mystical appearance to it. It has a really neat look to it. You can turn them into glass mosaics. You can take 60 pounds off a person and you can change their body into a pretzel. Whatever you want to do with digital photography, it's doable. And it's just, it's just really, really amazing, you know, what you can do with this stuff. But there's one limitation I've discovered in digital photography that you still have when you had the traditional photography. There's one adjustment that the software just doesn't program out for you yet. And that is when a picture was taken out of focus to begin with, there's no way to really ever get it back in focus. They got all other kinds of adjustment in the software, but if it was out of focus, you're just kind of hosed. They do have a tool for that, and it's a big red X on the toolbar in my software. And when you see one that's out of focus, you click this red X, it fixes the problem by deleting the picture. But I just think it's so neat. And of course, you know, if we'd had digital photography back when my oldest couple of children were born, we'd have a lot more pictures of them. Now we just have more pictures than we know what to do with. And of course, now you've got programs on your computer that put up slides and, you know, you watch these pictures of the kids go by. You, every day I can see my whole life nearly flash in front of my eyes that way. And uh, now you can scan in old pictures and you can put them in and you can do stuff with those too. It's just, it's amazing what we can do. But the fact is, is that if it's out of focus, it's out of focus. Well, guess what? Churches and marriages and families and individuals need to find a focus because if your life is out of focus, it doesn't matter how many seminars you go to or how much counseling you get or how many friends that you have, your life won't be what God intended it to be if it's out of focus to begin with. So let me take a quick poll. Real simple question. We'll only take four or five answers because I don't want to drag it out. Why are we here tonight? Somebody volunteer an answer. I heard somebody whisper, go ahead and have nerve. We'll give, we'll give, we'll, we'll give you extra points for having nerve tonight. 
Go ahead. To worship, okay. To study the Bible. Good answers. Another one. To fellowship. Good answer. What's another one? To become more like Christ. Great answer. How about another one? One more. Go ahead. It's the Lord's Day. It's Christian duty. You know, these are all good answers, and they're all answers we would typically give, but it's interesting that there's still one answer that really encompasses all of those. And it's an answer David gave. Now, I could have Brother Phil come up and explain a musical term for us at this point, but do you all know what a medley is? A medley is when you take a whole bunch of songs and put it together in an arrangement. First Chronicles 16 is a medley. Now, you may not have realized that. I know that because the words in 1 Chronicles 16 come from Psalm 105, verses 1 through 15, from Psalm 96, verses 1 through 3, and Psalm 106, verses 147 and 48. David is pulling words from other songs that he's written. Now, you may not know this. The word psalm means song. Specifically, it's a Latin word. It means a song sung with a stringed instrument. That's what the Latin title, psalmoi, for this book is. Now, in Hebrew, it's not called that. In Hebrew, they don't call it songs for a stringed instrument. It's called tehillim, which means praises. So the whole 150 psalms that are sung with a stringed instrument are really songs of praise to God. That's what this book of psalms is about. And by the way, I have a little, uh, one of those little pet irritations. It's not Psalms 22. It's Psalm 22, singular. When you're referring to one psalm, you say psalm. When it's three or four psalms, then you would say Psalms 22 through 24. And that's the way you'd refer to these. It would be like saying hymn 454 or hymns 454, 455, and 456. Now we have a medley here based on three different psalms is given us in 1 Chronicles 16. And there was a reason that David is now singing a medley. He, his heart is really happy. He's having a good day. The reason he's having a good day is because for a long time the Ark of the Covenant, you know that's that thing Indiana Jones went to go look for, right? Well, the Ark of the Covenant has been gone. We'll talk more about how a couple of gentlemen by the name of Hophni and Phinehas messed it up and got it kind of lost for a while. But the ark has now come back to where David is. David has brought the ark of God back to the people of Israel. Now he tried twice. The first time was a bad disaster because he didn't do it the way he was supposed to. But now he's got the ark back and he... He commissions a party. He gives everybody rations of, of food to celebrate with. He commissions music for the occasion. He has them singing because the Ark of the Covenant is back. This is that box made out of wood and inside are the Ten Commandments and, and, and the rod that budded and, and uh, uh, there's, there's all kinds of stuff inside here, most importantly the law of God, and it's covered over with a lid of gold and on the gold is the two seraphim or angels facing each other and that's where the blood had to be sprinkled on Yom Kippur which is the Jewish day of atonement because only by covering the law with the blood are we saved from the consequences of the law. This is a big deal. Not only that, but God's presence in Israel's history often went with this box. He often followed the box. And we're going to talk about that. But David comes and he's, they've got the ark back. And he's excited. He's pumped. He's got his adrenaline flowing. And he starts singing this medley to the Lord. And in the midst of the medley, he reveals the focus for South Park Baptist Church. He reveals the singular focus for my family. He reveals the reason why I'm on this planet and why you're on this planet with me. I want you just to jump down in 1 Chronicles 16 to verse 23 and listen to these words. 
This is the focus. Nothing else matters. You know, when you zero in with the camera and focus on one thing, other things around it begin to blur. We need to zero in and focus on this one thing and let everything else blur because this is the main thing. 1 Chronicles 16.23 Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Show forth from day to day His salvation. Declare His glory among the heathen, His marvelous works among the nations. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Glory and honor are in His presence. Strength and gladness are in His place. Give unto the Lord, ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And so here it is. The focus, the target, the reason we have enough breath to fog up a mirror in the morning is God wants us to give Him glory. That's the reason South Park Baptist Church is here. And if we ever lose that focus and think our job is to maybe become uh, a little bit more like the world so the world's more comfortable, or we ever think our job is to is just to win souls, or our job is just to build a building, or our job is just to conduct business, or our job is just to have a stewardship drive, we will have missed what God intended for this church because we will have missed the singular focus He wants us to have our job is to give unto the Lord the glory due His name. And everything has to fall out of that one thing. Now, I've been blessed many years ago. I decided that as a young pastor, I needed some mentors in the ministry. I needed some people that could, I could write and, and ask them questions and, and that they'd give me wisdom from their years of experience. And so... God laid on my heart two of the finest Christian gentlemen I've ever known. One of those is a, one of our pastors by the name of Ronald Morgan. I love that man, and he took the time to answer my questions. He took the time to write me letters, took the time to encourage me. He'll always have a dear place in my heart. And the other was one of my very favorite teachers I ever had. He was the person who, who set me straight one time. He, he didn't ever want me to get cocky, so he told me, he says, Robert Judy is your claim to fame. And he was right. And that was a fellow by the name of Dr. E. Harold Henderson. One of the things I loved about Dr. Henderson, he could watch him in a church service. And he'd be sitting over here on this, you know, the little short pew where the speakers sit, and something would make him happy during church, and he'd... Glory! I didn't know Baptists were allowed to do that till I met Dr. Henderson. Fact is, I found out Baptists used to shout all the time. He sat over there, he'd clap, and his favorite word was glory. Oh, I love that. I invited Dr. Henderson one time when I was president of the student body at the seminary to come speak at seminary. And I said, Dr. Henderson, would you preach on giving glory to God? Oh, what a sermon. It was awesome. It, it was also kind of unusual. We had a, a pretty good crowd of folks that night at seminary. It was on a Monday night. Uh, he was the first speaker in kind of a student-sponsored revival. And he preached this sermon on giving the Lord glory. And when it was time for the invitation, everybody was standing up. And they were singing. I don't remember what the song was. But what I remember was is that all of a sudden, without anybody prompting, without anybody suggesting it, without anybody holding up cue cards, suddenly and in unison at the very same moment, everybody in that congregation took their neighbor's hand and we all lifted hands to heaven. I bet you didn't know that happened in a BMA seminary. It was spontaneous. It wasn't one of those deals where you lift hands and you look around and say, is everybody else as spiritual as I am? Some people do that. But it was just giving the Lord glory. That's exciting. It's exciting to be part of a worship service like that. Our purpose is to give God the glory. Now, a few years ago in Chicago, 
a pastor got really motivated about this, and he, he went down and he got a parade permit, and uh, he filed all the necessary papers with the city of Chicago, and he sent out uh, advertisements and letters and flyers, and he decided that he was going to hold a parade, a public parade, a legally conducted parade to the honor and glory of God. That's kind of a cool idea. Because I've been in Washington, D.C., and I've seen parades that I can tell you in great detail if I had to, but I could tell you they weren't to the glory of God. You know how many people showed up at the parade? 214. It was him and the 213 police officers that had been told to be there at the event. Now that probably says a little bit more about his ability as a promoter. But it does also speak about the fact that we don't seem to put a high priority on glorifying God in our society anymore. I mean, I, I think if there was more glorifying God, these people wouldn't have the guts to publish a 14-year-old Gnostic gospel heretical book that for 14 centuries has been put down as total heresy, but this month on the cover of National Geographic it says the gospel of Judas. And in it it says that Jesus wanted to be free of sin and knew as long as he had a human body he was going to sin. So he got together with Judas Iscariot and said, Would you betray me so that they'll kill me so I can be freed from my body and then I'll be the person I was meant to be. That's 1,400 years worth of garbage. And now we've got, as of last Friday, the Da Vinci Code. Listen. I know that novel's only been out a few years ago, but you need to wake up and smell the coffee. That error has been around for a few hundred centuries. It's been around a lot of centuries. It goes back as just about as far as the gospel of Judas does. And it's this thing that said, oh, well, Christ you know, didn't really do the whole you know, the death and resurrection thing. He really got married to Mary Magdalene. They had all these children, and the descendants are still alive today. Good grief. And yet... <laughs> sin isn't new. The devil's not as imaginative as he would like to be. He's just resurrecting old sins and bringing them back again. Old errors and bringing them back. But you know, if we were giving God the glory he deserved, they might not have the guts to do that. Well, I want to show you how his glory is the dominant theme in the Bible. And let me just start by giving you one scripture that I think is worth Remembering, it's Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8, and it says this, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another. Isaiah 42, 8 says it very plainly, I'll not give my glory to another. Now Herod forgot this in Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 12, uh, it says, Upon a set day Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, set upon his throne, and he made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout saying, It's the voice of a God and not of a man. Now, the problem is Herod believed it. He thought, yeah, that does kind of sound God-like. Listen, a comment like that's like perfume. Smells real good. It'll kill you if you swallow it. And what, did he, what happened to him? It says, immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory. And he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Next time you're tempted to take credit for your promotion at work, remember this story. Give God the glory. Next time somebody gives you a pat on the back for something you did well, give God the glory. Make sure that that's the focus of your life. Always give God the glory. That's an important thing. Well, Herod accepted the honor and he was struck dead on the spot. In the book of Exodus... Pharaoh rebelled against God. He denied God. He refused to worship God. Pharaoh wouldn't free the Israelites from slavery. And the scripture says this in Exodus 14, 18. It, God says, The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord and I will gain glory through Pharaoh. Now, did you know God could get glory through a wicked ruler? He can. In fact, this is an interesting thing. God tells Moses before any of those ten plagues start, he says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and I'm going to get the glory. And a lot of people says, no, wait a minute. 
God is in the heart softening business. He softens our heart so we'll receive the gospel and then we can get saved and then we can glorify. God wouldn't harden anybody's heart. It says right there in Exodus, he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now before you think that's kind of a mean thing for God to do, let me tell you a little secret. Nine times in the book of Exodus, it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord. It's only after it says that nine times that it finally says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Here's a little secret for you. If you keep hardening your own heart to God someday, he's going to say, nope, you crossed the line. I'm going to finish hardening it, and now you'll never hear the gospel. I don't know when that point is, but I do know that the Bible teaches there's a point after which sometimes God says not to pray for somebody anymore. Don't keep hardening your own heart. So if Pharaoh had chosen to be obedient, he could have been a part of showing God's glory. But instead, he and his, his entire army died when the waters of the Red Sea came rushing in on them. God takes his glory seriously. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3, the seraphim around the throne of God sing to one another and says, Holy, 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 the Lord God of hosts, the whole earth is full of his what? His glory. He cares about His glory. In Psalm 19.1 it says, When you go outside tonight and you, if you can get far enough away from all these, uh, these, these mercury bulbs and these city lights, you can get out in the country and you look up and you see all the stars. Or when you go out tomorrow and you got maybe a pretty blue sky and some of those clouds that keep changing shapes, it says the heavens declare the glory of God. And see, some people get a little freaked out. They think with all those planets out there, all those galaxies out there, all the universes, and if you start reading statistics on astronomy, it is a mind-boggling thing. And they say, well, a universe that big, surely God had to make another planet somewhere with people on it. I even one time heard that uh, Billy Graham, when asked the question, said, yeah, there probably are other planets with people on it. Personally, my personal opinion, I don't have scripture for this, my personal opinion is, nope, we're it. Because I've got this feeling that when God built all those other galaxies and all those other uh, universes and He built all the solar system that you see and our Milky Way galaxy is just one little drop in the bucket compared to the whole universe, I think He was showing off. I think he wanted us to keep studying, find out how really big the universe was because he made it and he's even bigger. <laughs> I remember a great preacher by the name of G. Campbell Morgan had a little lady walk out one Sunday after he'd preached. She says, Pastor Morgan, do you think it's all right for me to pray about the little things? And he very wisely replied, Ma'am, to God, every request you make is a little one. There's nothing big for him. You ever think about that? It may seem big to you, but it's, it's a piece of cake for him. The sun, the moon, the stars, they all give glory to God. They all stay in their orbit. They all obey a God. You'll never see a bunch of stars, you know, deciding to, to segregate themselves from the universe and, and disobey God's rules of order. In fact, it's in all of God's creation, there's only two things that have ever chosen to disobey Him. One was the angels. A third of the angels disobeyed him and they fell from heaven. At least that's my interpretation of that passage in Revelation. Interesting thing about that is that the angels had been in the very presence of God. They'd seen his glory up front and personal. But they never were given a chance to repent. If you're an angel and you make that wrong decision, it's permanent. Your, your destruction is sealed. But then the other creature that made this decision was a, a little couple by the name of Adam and Eve that somewhere in your family tree and mine is our great, 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 great ad infinitum grandma and grandpa. And they made the same decision and rebelled against God. They denied, they rejected, they failed to acknowledge the glory of God. And for that reason it now says, for all have sinned and come short of the what? The glory of God. We've all fallen short of His glory. But you know what? He gives us a chance to repent. That's a neat thing. I can invite Jesus Christ into my heart, and even though I've sinned, I've fallen short of His glory, I don't deserve to go to heaven, He will let me 
take the gift that Jesus offers, he'll clean my heart and say, okay, now you can come and live with me forever. And the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12 that angels long to understand salvation, but they can't fathom it. Wow. <laughs> the angels look at me and say, God, I don't know how you saved them. <laughs> I don't know how you changed them. I have no clue what you're doing with them. I wish we could understand it. I, I, I wonder sometimes if when we get to heaven, the first thing we'll do will be to look up Jesus, get to see him. I wonder, though, how long we're going to be there till some angel comes and taps us on the shoulder and says, can you tell me what it was like? Oh, wouldn't that be cool? Look back in Genesis chapter 3 with me. I want you to see God's glory on display in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. You shall be as gods. In other words, you'll have his glory. Knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and tree did be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves apron. Now, some interesting aspects to this story. They eat a piece of fruit and suddenly discover they're not wearing clothes. Doesn't that strike you as being a little strange? That's one of those things I'd like to know before I walked out of the house. <laughs> but you know what? It's because they were clothed before sin. Did you know that? See, a lot of people don't know that, but they were clothed before the sin. See, God has walked physically with Adam and Eve in the garden. He walked and talked with them. In fact, is Chinese is, is the second oldest written language in the world. And in every single Chinese restaurant you go into in Tarrant County, I promise you there's going to be this one little symbol, and it's going to have kind of a little ziggy line followed by a straight line down. And then over here it's going to have a little square with this divided up into four parts. And then up at the top, it's going to have another little symbol that's a symbol for man. It's the character for blessing. Chinese look at it like it's good luck. We want to hang the blessing symbol so we get blessed. The interesting thing is that Chinese symbol for blessing is made up of three characters, and it means one man in the garden alone with God. That's the Chinese definition of blessing is to be in the garden alone with God. Now, how much better could it get? You know what's also interesting, and if you go back to these Chinese characters, is that the Chinese character for the word light or fire shows a man with fire radiating out from his body. Before Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, they were not naked, they were clothed in fire. They were clothed in glory. They shared uh, glory because they spent time with God. You remember Moses? He came down off of the mount after he got the Ten Commandments. What? You, anybody remember what happened to his face? It shone. And the further he came down the mountain, it began to dim. But everybody looked at him and it shone. And Moses didn't want people thinking he was a God. And so he put a veil over his face. You always think about the Israelite women wearing veil. Moses had to wear one because he'd been in the presence of God and he shone with the glory of God. Now listen, if Moses, who was a sinner, could be like that, guess what it must have been like for Adam and Eve without sin, spending time in the presence of God, they were clothed in light. They were clothed in light. In fact, as the psalmist tells us this, he tells us how God is dressed. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, thou art very great, thou art clothed with honor and majesty. Now listen to this. Who coverest thyself with light as with a garment. Now if you and I are made in the image of God and he's clothed with light, how do you think he made Adam and Eve? They were clothed with light. 
Sin enters and they lose the light. They rejected honoring the glory of God. The fact is, it's kind of interesting, some other things. The word forbid in Chinese is made up of some characters that means God made a commandment about two trees in the garden. Hmm. What a coincidence. Ask some of your evolutionist teachers sometime to explain how things from the first 14 chapters of Genesis made their way into the second oldest written language in the world. Makes you go, hmm. That is one of my favorites is the word covet. Covet shows a woman standing between two trees trying to make a decision between them. There were two principal trees in the garden, weren't there? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Eve made a bad decision. My favorite, though, sorry, ladies. My very favorite, though, is the Chinese word for confusion. It shows two women under one roof. A lot of interesting things in those characters. Yes, and I have seven women under my roof. And you wonder what's wrong with me. So God extended his love to Adam and Eve. He says, I've given you life. Will you acknowledge me? Will you give me glory? Will you give me glory? Will you glorify me? And yet they sought their own glory. And they fell. So in the garden, man had an opportunity to respond to God's glory, and they responded wrong. Then in the wilderness, look at Exodus chapter 33 real quickly. Exodus 33, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See thou sayest to me, Bring up this people. Now hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou said, I know thee by name, and thou hast found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. And he said, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And Moses, it says, And he said unto him, Moses said unto God, If thy presence go not with me, carry me not up hence. He says, God... You want me to lead your people, but if you're not going, I don't want to go either. And in Exodus 34, verses 29 and 30, it says, And it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, Moses knew not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. While he's with God, his face shone. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh to him. In fact, I'll tell you something. I still today can often tell very quickly when I'm in the presence of another Christian if they've spent time with God because there'll be a light in their eyes. And I see so many people that they, they spend all their time with the world's messages in their ears and they have a dark, haunting look to them instead of this shine that we ought to have. So in Exodus 34, verse 33, Moses put a veil on his face. But you know what? Moses spends all this time in the very presence of God. God's glory shines on him, shines on him so much that Moses' own face begins to glow so that he has to hide it with a veil so people won't accidentally worship him instead of worshiping God. But when he comes down from the mountain with his glowing face with the Ten Commandments, guess what the people are doing? They've talked Aaron brilliant individual that Aaron was and they brought all their gold jewelry and Aaron says uh, 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 well I threw it in the fire and out came these two golden calves so what could we do but worship them he was a wuss but they weren't worshiping God they, ref they refused his glory then in Exodus 40 God gives Moses instructions for building a tabernacle it's this tent it's going to be called the tent of meeting. And it was everything about it was designed to glorify God. You could only come in the gate on the east side. And in order to get through the gate, you had to walk through. See, each of the 12 tribes of Israel were told which side of the tent to camp on. Judah had to camp on the east side because you had to come through the tribe of Judah to even get in to worship God. And that's because Jesus is from what tribe? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
They get inside and they have this, this brazen altar, which is a picture of the sacrifice of Christ for our sin. And then they had this laver, which pictures needing to wash ourselves from the defilement of the world before we can serve God. And then they have the tent proper, and then here's the holy place. And there's the table of showbread over here, which represents the Word of God. There's, there's a, a, a candlestick over here, which represents the Spirit of God. There's a... a, a, a altar of incense here which represents our prayers to God and then back behind a really thick curtain is that Ark of the Covenant that box that David was so happy to get back and everything about it even the, the description of what you had to make the curtains of if you study it every bit about it is about the glory of God in fact is this may surprise you there is more written in the Bible about the tabernacle than any other subject except Jesus himself. That ought to blow your mind. We don't ever study it. Hmm, wonder if we're missing something. And so here they're supposed to build this. And it says in Exodus 40, verse 34, it says, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It was so full of God's glory, he couldn't even walk in. That's pretty full of glory. Verse 36 through 38 says, When the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in their journeys. If the cloud was not taken up, then they stayed. Basically, this cloud at day was, was like this, this just this really bright cloud. At night, it looked like fire. And I want to tell you a little secret, because this is, this, this is a mind-boggling thing. I just thought about this the other day. You remember when, when Moses is getting ready to cross the Red Sea, he's going to lead the people across. He's got three million people to lead. It would take him approximately two days to get across. Pharaoh's army is coming in from behind, ready to destroy the Israelites. And God puts his cloud, that Shekinah cloud of glory, between the Israelites and Pharaoh. But here's something you might have missed if you hadn't read that story closely is that when the Israelites looked at that cloud, they saw fire. When the Pharaoh's armies looked at that cloud, they saw nothing but darkness. In fact, do you remember what one of the plagues of Israel was? It was an extreme darkness. It was so dark that people had to stay in their homes because they literally couldn't find their way to the restroom anymore in the middle of the night. That's how dark it was. It didn't matter what they tried to do. There was never any light. They stumbled around in absolute darkness. But the Bible says at the very same time, the children of Israel had light. They could go anywhere. They could do anything they wanted to do. You know why? Because God wants you and I to get the message that we're to walk in the light of God and not in the darkness of the world. We're to be different, we're to look different, we're to smell different, we're to talk different, we're to act different. It should be the difference between night and day. And so they walked in the glory of the Lord, and here's this glory in the tabernacle. Can you imagine that you were in that crowd of Israel that went across the Red Sea and the waters parted, and you went on through, and the armies are destroyed after God has held back Pharaoh's armies for about four days and then they rush into the Red Sea and the Red Sea collapses on them and the armies are destroyed. Can you imagine that you saw the presence of God in a fiery pillar of fire and then ten puny little wimps come back from looking at a big city in the promised land and they said, Oh, we can never take the city. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. We'll perish. You know what happened? They believed the wimps instead of their own eyes and what they'd seen God do. They could have followed the glory of God and they could have gone right into the promised land right then and God could have given them every victory and gotten all the glory and instead they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. You know why? Because they weren't focused. I'll tell you, tell you a little secret. Next time you're trying to make a decision, some of you are making decisions about where to go to college. Some of you are making decisions about a job. Some of you are trying to make decisions about which bill to pay first. Some of you are trying to make decisions about service in the church. Let me give you a little clue. If you want to know what God's will is, ask this question. What would give God the most glory? 
You answer that question, and you'll find God's will. And see, I appreciate our pastor. Some people think that if the church wants to build a building, we just go down to, to Texas State Bank or First National Bank, and we sign off on a note, and we issue bonds, people buy the bonds, we go into debt, we can build the whole, whole building right away, poof, and there it is. And then, you know, we'll take 20, 30 years, we'll get it paid off. Maybe we pay it off early, maybe 10, 15 years. Let me ask you a question. Does it give God more glory for us to borrow money, or does it give God more glory to supply it in advance? And if you figure out the answer to that question, you'll know what God's will is. You see, that's a great question for under, uh, understanding God's will. Is what gives Him the most glory? And that's what we, we need to do. So God provided, while they're in the wilderness for 40 years, He made manna fall. Manna was a Hebrew word, manah, which means what is it? Because nobody was sure what it was. But they went out and they got it together and they ground it and they made bread out of it. And, and yet the people found more and more reasons to complain. But God didn't give up. Solomon comes along. Solomon builds the temple in 1 Kings chapter 10. It's, he did something really unusual. In fact, it's, I'm going to just have to end the message here and we'll finish it next week. Because the good part's coming. The exciting part of the ultimate revelation of God's glory that was in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the super-duper revelation of God's glory that is yet to come that the Bible talks about, I'll get to next week. But I want you to just get this one little picture. In 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 16, here's what it says. King Solomon made 200 targets. That's like a shield of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into one target. He made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three pounds of gold went to one shield and the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. So here's what happened. Solomon builds the temple. God, it says, came down on the day of the inauguration of the temple and he filled that temple with his what? His glory. Solomon, when he would walk from the palace to the temple which interestingly enough in Hebrew, the word for palace and the word for temple are the same word. A temple was a palace for God, for what it was meant to be. When Solomon would walk to the temple, he would have his soldiers line the street between his palace and God's temple. And a bunch of them had gold, solid gold shields that are about that big around. And, uh, and then there were another six, that was about 300 shields like that, and about 600 shields that are about that big around. And you're, you're standing holding the shield. It's pure gold. The sun is shining down on these pure gold shields and it's reflecting off the shields. And guess what the ground looked like? It was so bright. Solomon probably wished he had Foster Ban or, or Ray Ban or something to wear because it was bright. Gold colored the ground. And it was a reminder to the king that when you're going to the temple to worship God, you're worshiping a king far greater than yourself. And he deserves all the glory. And you're on holy ground when you go to give glory to God. And he'd walk there. And every time he went to worship, they brought out these 900 shields of solid gold. But years later, after Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam became king over that part of the kingdom. The kingdom was actually split. Now we have Israel and Judah. Rehoboam takes the two tribes of Judah and tries to be their king. And a fellow by the name of Shishak, I used to think that was fun. You know, maybe, it's, maybe it's just as funny as Shaquille, you know. But Shishak, who was the king of Egypt, came over and he'd heard about these 900 gold shields. You know what he did? He stole every one of them. Now when Rehoboam would go to the temple, there was no more 900 solid gold shields reflecting the light of the sun down on the ground, making everybody think about how incredibly holy and worthy of worship God was. You know what they did? He didn't go get them back. What he ought to have done. But he was, he was too smart for that because he might get somebody killed going back for those gold shields. You know what he did? He made 900 shields out of brass. Now, I, brass is kind of a cool thing. 
My, I had a stepfather. He's been gone with the Lord for a number of years, but he spent some time in the Orient. He spent some time in Japan and the Philippines, and he brought back these brass tables. And I became the, the, the blessed inheritor, I guess, of these brass tables. I got one that's that big around, kind of like one of those shields. I want to tell you that it doesn't do a lot about reflecting the sunlight because brass without a regular application of a really nasty substance called brasso on a t-shirt that was once white but will never be so again doesn't stay shiny. It tarnishes. It gets dark. So what Rehoboam did is he substituted a cheap substitute for real worship of God. And I've got news for you. I think a lot of what goes on in churches today is a cheap substitute for real giving God the glory. We play at religion. We sing the songs and we entertain ourselves. But when we walk away, we can't say in our heart of hearts, Wow, God was magnified today. Where is that? Where is it? got more I'll save for next week. But let me share this thought with you. If we're not seeing those kind of services in church, if people in the community round about us aren't saying, wow, that's that church where God is being glorified, then it's because you and I as individuals have lost our individual focus. Because this church... And its spiritual condition does not depend solely on Brother Henry or on its deacons or on its music director or associate pastor. It depends on you. Let me ask you this question. When God gets you up to heaven and He develops your life, will the picture be in focus? Will He be able to say, Ah, you had it the right thing in mind. You were focused on the right thing. You, were, you had clarity of vision. See, I think what God really is on Judgment Day for Christians is He's a photography judge. And what He's going to do is He's going to look at the picture of our lives. And I think a lot of them He's going to say, Well, we're glad you're here. Appreciate you entering the contest. You get to stay because you had it on you had it on Jesus Christ. You had your picture printed on Jesus Christ's paper. You get to stay. But he's only going to take those pictures that were in focus and they came out looking really good because when you look at the picture you see, you look at the picture of this person's life and you suddenly see, man, there's Jesus. And then you're going to hear the photography judge say, well done, thou good and faithful photographer. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. This one's going in my album. I hope that doesn't seem sacrilegious to you for me to use a photography metaphor. But folks, our lives need to be focused on one thing and one thing only. That's giving God the glory. Sometimes the best way to give God the glory is to share Jesus with somebody. Sometimes it's giving until it hurts. Sometimes it's it's a clapping your hand and saying, Glory! Make that the focus of your life. Let's stand. I tell you, I just want to do this tonight. If you just bow your heads where you are, and we're going to let the instrumentalist play a number. Not going to sing. We're just going to let the instrumentalist play. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes where you are. I wonder how many of you would say tonight that you know your life has been out of focus, but you want to give God the glory. Here's what I want you to do. While you hear that song playing, don't raise your hand. See, if you raise your hand, there's going to be one or two people who didn't close your eyes. There's always those. But what I want you to do is if, if you want to give God the glory in your life in a new way, would you just look up at me and smile? Just smile right at me. Saying that's that's my commitment. I want to, I want to live for the glory of God. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. 
Let's go, Lord, in a word of prayer, and then we'll have our business meeting. Let's just pray together. Father in heaven, God, forgive me for too often getting out of focus. So easy to focus on the world because we're barraged with media every day telling us about all the things the world has to offer. But God, when I get up to heaven, I want you to look at the picture of my life. And I want you to say, I see my son in that picture. Well done. Father, may we at South Park Baptist Church never lose focus of the one thing that will make the main thing the main thing, and that is to give you the glory. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. If you'll be seated real quickly, Brother Henry will come and conduct this one very quick business item, and uh, then you'll be dismissed for the evening. hate to have business after a wonderful message like that, but let's not let the business distract from the message tonight. You know, this is God's business, and every business meeting ought to bring glory to God also. Since this is a call business meeting, I need a motion and second to go into call conference. Those in favor, raise your right hand. Down, any opposed? And... Brother Wendell found three bids, and he'll read the one the deacons recommend that we accept. The deacons and building committee would like to recommend that we hire Intech Engineering Company to do our soil test at a cost of $1,425. Brother Moderator, I believe we accept the recommendation. All right, we have a motion second. Any question or discussion on this? It's something we have to do to get started on our building, and we wanted to have a call meeting so we can get along a little, little faster, and I hope you understand that. Any discussion? If not, those favoring this recommendation from the deacons, would you raise your right hand, please? Down, anyone opposed by like sign? See none, thank you. Do I have a motion to adjourn? Let's stand. Brother Bill Herbert, would you dismiss us, please?